right, good morning. So nice to be with all of you. All right, it was a warm spring day in 1996. And I somehow found myself sitting outside the door of the principal and vice principal's offices in my junior high school. You see, I was in trouble and I was mad. I was mad because I had been wrongfully accused. I sat there in the office next to this boy named Josh, who was the instigator, and it was all his fault that I found myself where I was that warm spring day. We found ourselves in this little predicament because Josh had taken apart a Bic pen and turned it into a spitwad shooter. Anybody else have those memories from school? <laughs> I had been the target of said spitwads, and I think, from what I can remember, that I may have caused a slight disturbance in my class. And my sixth grade teacher, Miss Moss, was not happy and also assumed that I was involved in the shooting of the Spitwads. So, I found myself, for the very first time, might I add, in the principal's office, wrongfully accused of also spitting, of shooting Spitwads. As I sat there on the hard wooden chairs outside the principal's office, we were told that we would meet with whomever finished their meeting first between the principal and the vice principal. And they would be the ones that would help us work out our little issue. I continued to claim my innocence because I was. And I sat there praying that the principal would be the one who would finish his meeting first. Because, well, the vice principal went to my church and she knew my mom and dad. And I knew if I had any chance of avoiding having to talk to my parents about this situation, that I needed the principal to be the one that was done first, and I somehow needed to slip out of the office completely undetected by the vice principal. Miraculously, the Lord heard my prayers. <laughs> And out walked Mr. Bridges, the junior high principal, and he welcomed the presumed guilty into his office. After we got a lecture about why shooting spitwads was not only a disturbance to the class, but also dangerous and disgusting, to which I kept thinking, ah, uh, yeah, I know, I'm the one that got hit with the spitwad, we were finally given an opportunity to share our sides of the story. I went first, and I continued to claim my innocence, completely blaming Josh, but it was his fault. And I felt like Mr. Bridges was believing my sob story and was on my side. And he believed the poor innocent girl who got hit by a spitwad. Then it was Josh's turn. And all I could think was, he better not lie and drag me down with him. Thankfully, he didn't. He admitted it was his fault, apologized for having inappropriate behavior, 
And we were both sent on our way after Josh was giving a, given a very strict warning, even though I personally thought he deserved far worse. Being wrongfully accused is rage-inducing, soul-crushing, and feels horrible. At least in our human response, that's how we can feel. Today, we're going to see how Paul, who has been wrongfully accused and held in prison, continues his faithful fight to spread the gospel for the glory of his risen Savior. While we don't know the inner workings of Paul's mind and the emotions that he was feeling, we do see a man obediently going where his Lord and Savior wanted him to go. Now, while I am not Paul, and you are not Paul, I think we can muster up enough empathy to begin to think about how he might have been feeling during his imprisonment. We'll see in our narrative today how Paul responds to yet another set of accusations from his fellow Jews. And ultimately, we will see how Paul's identity is so deeply rooted in Jesus that he is willing to endure whatever comes his way for the advancement of the gospel. Now, if we've never met, my name is Ruth Silka. I'm a member of the teaching team here at COV. And I'm excited and honored to open up God's word with us or with you this morning. So if you would join me, I'm going to just pause and pray for us before we look back into Acts chapter 25. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you. God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for the honor of joining together and gathering today to open up your word and to learn and to study and to grow together. Father God, I pray that you would equip me. God, may you get all the glory. And we thank you, Father, for all that you are going to do. I pray that you would remove the distractions that are around us now, God, and help us to completely focus on you and what you have for us today. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's jump right into our text. Uh, Acts 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. So Festus has just replaced Felix as governor. So let's give ourselves a little bit of context from chapter 24 before we continue. 24-27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Pontius Festus, Pontius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Okay, so that's where we left off in the earlier chapter. Now, earlier in chapter 24, we read about how Felix was bringing Paul before him whenever he felt like it, and as a favor to the Jews, all while hoping that he would maybe receive a bribe from Paul, Felix kept Paul in prison. So it appears from some study that I've done that what we read in, chap in verse 27 of chapter 24, that Paul was probably in prison for two years at the point where the narrative picks up in chapter 25. And Festus was succeeded, or has succeeded Felix after Felix was ousted for mismanaging an incident of conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles in Caesarea. So now Festus is in power, and the Jewish leaders had 
who had condemned Paul as guilty of defiling the temple see an opportunity to bring their case to before some new leaders and some new leadership with the hope that they could finally succeed in their plot to kill Paul. All right, let's jump back to verse 3. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Once again, we see a plot to ambush Paul and kill him. Now, if you've been with us about throughout the last month or so as we've been studying the book of Acts, you'll remember that the last plot to kill Paul happened back in Acts 23. And this plan was actually thwarted by Paul's own nephew in verses 12 through 16. Let's read those to remind ourselves what happened. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken the solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. So after Paul's nephew told him about the plot, he asks, uh, Paul asks one of the centurions to take this young man, his nephew, to the commander. When Paul's nephew then bring, he brings the story and the whole plot before the commander and the commander decides not to send Paul back to the Sanhedrin, which was the, is the Jewish religious governing body. And instead, he had Paul transferred to Caesarea, where we find him in our text today. And these actions ultimately spared his life. Like we've seen throughout the book of Acts, the Lord had his hand of protection over Paul's life. And he is paving a way for Paul to proclaim the gospel in Rome, just as the Lord told him he would do. And none of this, not the requests from the Jews, nor the answers given by Festus, took the Lord by surprise. He always was, always is, and always will be in total control. Verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Just as we saw back in Acts 23, the Jews are bringing false claims against Paul. But even in their efforts to accuse him of serious charges, they are unable to prove the charges to be true. In this moment, the Lord was allowing truth to prevail. The false claims were not making a difference or bringing Paul any closer to a conviction or to death. We see the Lord's protection 
and his plan at work. In Acts 23, verse 11, we see Paul, or we see the Lord encourage Paul. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord stood near Paul. And he gave him confidence that his life would be spared and that his mission of spreading the gospel was not over yet. The Lord had a plan for Paul to testify in Rome. So let's pick back up in verse 8 of chapter 25 to see how the Lord's plan for Paul to go to, to Rome begins to unfold. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if these charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. The Lord is opening a door that will lead Paul to Rome through his appeal to Caesar. When Paul appealed to Caesar, he was declaring the Roman Fifth Amendment. He was practicing his right as a Roman citizen to be tried in Rome before the highest court. And I find it interesting that Festus did not just order Paul to return to Jerusalem to be tried there. Instead, he asks Paul if he'd be willing to go. Again, we see the Lord's hand at work here, his plan coming forth, and his sovereignty over all things is at play. Also, Paul does not waver. He stands firm in his identity that is deeply rooted in the risen Jesus Christ. And he knows full well that his appeal to Caesar will get him to Rome, the place the Lord had promised him he will go. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered that the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion 
and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. In his new position of power, Festus, unsure of what to do, starts to talk out the situation with King Agrippa, who has come to pay his respects to him. Now, I'm sure many of us could relate to talking something out with a boss or a friend or a trusted colleague or a family member. And Festus is explaining the situation to King Agrippa here. And he begins to share his amazement that Paul was not charged with any of the crimes that he had expected. Now, we don't know what charges Festus was expecting. It doesn't say. But it seems that he was expecting there to be some really serious charges that would have led to death for Paul. But instead, it went back to the fact that Paul had proclaimed the gospel truth about his resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, whom he had encountered on the road to Damascus. Paul is being accused of having his identity rooted in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, not of actions that had defiled the temple which he was accused of when he was arrested in chapter 21. These Jewish leaders did not like the fact that Paul was proclaiming the truth that Jesus, the man who walked this earth, was in fact God in flesh, who took on the sins of all humanity on his shoulders as he hung on the cross facing separation from God the Father as he took his last breath and gave up his life. And while there were days of darkness and what felt like defeat, on the third day he rose victoriously and appeared to hundreds to show the fact that he did rebuild the temple, his body, in three days, just as he claimed he would do. All before he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, where he remains today until he returns to this earth again to make all things new. Paul knew this truth. This truth shaped Paul's life. This truth was his identity. And he was not ashamed or fearful to proclaim this truth to all people everywhere he went. Paul was on trial for the fact that his hope came solely from the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. That Jesus lived the life that we could not, died the death that we deserved, and defeated death by rising again. Paul knew where his identity lied and on what his foundation was built. He knew that his actions were not what could save him, but that he was saved by grace grace through faith in Christ. Paul understood it was not about what he did, but instead it was all about whose he was. And Paul was a child of what Festus described as the dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed and knew was alive because 
He was and he is. Do we know this too? Do we know that it's not about what we do, but whose we are? Far too often we get our foundation of identity all screwed up. We can depend more on what we do than whose we are. We allow things like work and family and success and possessions or even failure to define who we are. And these things are tangible. And do you know what else these things are? They are all about us. And we like things to be all about us. By nature, we are selfish, sinful human beings who from a very young age like things to be all about us. And we like things to be comfortable. But if we take a step back and examine the truth of the gospel, it is not about us at all. It is about Jesus. It's far easier for us sinful human beings to want to place our identity in things that are all about us, in things that we can work for and get praise for, instead of placing our identity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because let's just call a spade a spade. It feels good. It feels good to have people praise us. We like people's praise. We like to be recognized for our accomplishments and our skills. But what, what we do in this life is not inherently bad. Right? God calls us to work and to use the gifts that he's given us and the talents that he's given us and the abilities that he, he has given us for his glory. And this doesn't mean that we should stop encouraging others and their abilities either. But far too often we forget the gift giver. And we focus on the emotion behind praise from other human beings. And ultimately, this is the sin of pride and reveals our unwillingness to submit to our Lord. It's about our heart condition. Our identity needs to be rooted in Jesus. Because you know what keeps you out of the kingdom of Christ? Putting your identity in anything else but Jesus and choosing to not submit your life to him as Lord and Savior. But even as followers of Jesus, we can be guilty of not placing our identity in him. And what, might you ask, happens when we do this? And how can we begin to build a firm foundation with our identity deeply rooted in Jesus? Well, the first answer is grace. There's grace. Jesus already accomplished on the cross what we could not do. And secondly, Tim will be answering all of these questions on Wednesday night during our community group series, May I See Your ID? Insert commercial here. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so I encourage you to come. 
Come and learn. Have these questions answered. All right, commercial over. Paul is deep in the midst of a trial here. And his identity is not wavering at all. He could have easily given up and said, okay, okay, take it back. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But he didn't. He was willing to die for his identity. And sometimes we are not even willing to tell people that we go to church. Even though Paul was imprisoned, he knew the truth. And the truth brought and offered him freedom. When we find our identity in Christ and Christ alone, we too can experience this freedom from the chains of sin and death. Now, if we look at some letters that Paul wrote, there's a common theme that we see in all of these letters that are included within the New Testament. And it is how he identifies himself as one sanctified by the Lord and one who lived out the truth of what a transformed life through the finished work of Jesus on the cross looks like. We can read an example of this in the first few verses of the book of Galatians. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the church in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We can see in these verses where Paul found his identity. And that is in Jesus. So let's get back to Acts chapter 25 and see how our verses wrap up this morning. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem. This is Festus talking. I, he was saying I was lost how to investigate. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself, he replied. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Talk about a cliffhanger, right? You're going to have to come back next week to hear how it all ends. But Paul was obedient to go wherever the Lord was calling him to go. Are we? Obedience is not hard when our identity is rooted in Christ. And we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Because when our identity is in Christ... We are a new creation in Christ. We are a child of God and an ambassador for Christ, a member of the body of Christ, a part of the bride of Christ. 
and he is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. When we are rooted in Christ, we can face all the ups and downs of life or the spit water shooter accusations that come our way with complete faith that he is in control. And here's the thing, which I know I struggle with all the time. But if our identity is truly in Christ and in his transforming work in our lives, then why would we not want to do what he's calling us to do? Even if it's uncomfortable or hard or doesn't sound all that fun. When we place our trust, our complete trust in him, we can begin to see the choice of obedience or even the trials that we face in life as an opportunity for the Lord to deepen and submit our identities in him. We can begin to see these opportunities to trust and to follow, not just as something that's hard, but as an opportunity for the Lord to begin to shape us and to mold us, to change us, to use us. To allow our lives to be light for him as we reflect his character and proclaim his work in our lives to the people around us. What areas of our lives do we need to examine for a willingness to obey? Are there places in your life that you are not necessarily willing to follow or to obey what the Lord is asking you to do? And maybe we're stuck in our own ways of thinking, and living and acting, that we are missing out on an opportunity to faithfully follow where the Lord is calling us to go. I want to encourage you, my dear friends. May we all, just like Paul, place our identities in Christ. Because that foundation is the only place where true freedom is found. When we place our identity in Jesus Christ, there is freedom May we have the kind of faith and trust like Paul did, that no matter what comes our way, we are deeply rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he came and lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and defeated death by rising again. That good news should change us. It should change how we live and it should give us such a deep desire to communicate that life-changing truth to the people around us. May our identities be so deeply rooted that our foundations are not shaken because we know that that is where freedom is found.
Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for the example of Paul. Thank you for his life. Thank you for how you moved and did incredible things. God, you had your hand of protection upon him. God, you used him. You equipped him. And Father, we, his identity was so deeply rooted. God, may we be people whose identity is so deep rooted in who you are and what you did for us. God, that we cannot help but be obedient and follow and go wherever you want us to go. And God, that, oh, that truth would just ooze out of every part of us so that everyone around us can see your transfer, transforming work in our lives. God, I thank you for this time and as we move forward and have the opportunity to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf through communion. God, may you convict us and reveal in our hearts areas where we are not placing our identity in you or ways that we have not been willing to be obedient. God, may you move, may you change hearts, and God, may you get all the glory. In your name I pray, amen.